0: Good afternoon, welcome to the STEM Tea Podcast. Today is another exciting day to be able to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and career development. Today, we have two amazing doctors that are on the phone, Dr. Crystal Starburn and Dr. Aileen Fernandez. Today, we're gonna talk about an amazing topic that focuses on DEI. In particular, we know that a lot of people are doing DEI right now, but one thing that's really sad is that there's a lack of understanding about what are the needs around DEI and the lack of understanding that the movement must go on. So the movement is something that we really want to kind of discuss. And the movement is focused around understanding how DEI should be incorporated into the classroom and also at the K-2, K-12 level, and also much larger when looking at the undergraduate, grad school, and medical school level. And then amongst getting at your postdoc and then or residency and then faculty. So usually, none of these areas are all incorporated together for DEI. So today we'll kind of talk about all these areas as kind of one large thing that an institution can do and understand where we can all improve together. So Dr. Crystal Starbird and Dr. Aileen Fernandez, I wanted to start with both of y'all tell me about yourselves, because the most important thing in the audience is to know that you are amazing researchers and that your research leads. And I just wanted you to tell me about yourself, who you are, your background, if you care to, and also about your amazing research.
1: Sure. I guess I can get started. So hi, everyone. I am Crystal Starbird. I am currently a postdoc at Yale, but I am transitioning to faculty at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics. So I did my graduate work at Vanderbilt, and I did my undergraduate work at several universities. I went to UNC Charlotte, I went to a community college, and then I completed my degree at UNC Chapel Hill. So this is me coming back to the place where I got my initial degree. So I study, I'm a structural biologist. So I get excited about protein structures. I study cell surface receptors, and essentially I'm interested in really basic questions about how they're activated and how the structures are changed during the activation process. But of course, anything that's on the surface of a cell is important for communication of the cell and so there's several diseases that are linked to these cell surface receptors. And so there's also an interest of mine in sort of thinking about that and expanding this basic understanding into understanding you know, how these processes are changed in the case of disease. Yeah, I think that's essentially it. I'll say, you know, for those, you can't see me, I'm a Black woman incoming faculty who is first generation from a low SES background and who also has three children. And I had two of them all through grad school and, and one of them came sort of middle way of grad school. So those are sort of my identities. I'll pass it on to Eileen, who's amazing.
2: Thank you. Chris is just, I know her story, but I just and I love her science, but it's always so great to hear her talk a little bit about it. So I'm Eileen. I'm currently a postdoc here at Yale School of Medicine I'm in the Department of Pathology. And I am a translational oncology researcher. So my my background actually starts off with going to community college because I was a top student coming out of high school, but I couldn't afford to leave. So I went to community college and it turned out to be a really great opportunity because I going into community college had some credits. For college. And because of that, I ended up qualifying for a Bridges to program. So I always like to mention this when I talk about my story, because I really truly am a product of the Bridges programs and just proof that these type of initiatives really, really work. So through this Bridges Tobaccalaureate program, I ended up going to the State University of New York at Purchase, which is very much a dancer school, but has a pretty good <laughs> biology program. But that's where I got my first exposure to cancer research. So I've been doing cancer research since I was 17. I'm going to refrain from saying my age now, but it's it's way more than 17 at this point. And after college, I actually graduated a little bit early because I was still paying out of pocket. I was working three and four jobs every semester. So I finished a semester early, went to work in the medical industry, I guess, and working in a women's imaging facility. So I was very pre-med at the time. I thought I wanted to go to medical school. And while I was working at this facility, I was doing biopsy tracking. So when a patient would come in, they would get imaged and if they, there was something suspicious found, they would have to be sent off to get a biopsy. And I had to sort of track from when they did a screening or if it was something suspicious they were looking and seeing where they went. Did they go get surgery? Did they go get treatment? That type of thing. So I've sort of always been in this biomarker world, I guess, from the beginning. But with that, I actually ended up learning about this Bridges to Doctorate program. So I went to do a master's in cancer biology prevention and control through the University of District of Columbia and Georgetown. It was a consortium program. And that led me to eventually giving up the MD fully because at that point I was like, maybe I'll do an MD-PhD because I realized I really missed research. And I ended up doing my PhD at Georgetown after the master's in tumor biology. And my, my background is very breast cancer heavy, even though I've I've touched on other cancer types. And I'm very passionate about cancer health disparities. And from there, though, I'm now doing a postdoc I mentioned in translational oncology, which literally means bench to bedside. So I'm now out of the cell lines, out of the Petri dishes, and I'm working really with tissues from patients and trying to discover new biomarkers. So trying to figure out better ways to decide who should and should not get these different types of cancer treatments. And it's my it's something that I really, really love now. So that's my my background.
0: Wow. Thank you so very much for sharing that both of you. And I just wanted to say that it's incredible to hear that you are so passionate about the work that you do. And I also was wondering about your future career goals and how that may integrate into your story and why you chose those areas. And I think it's important to ask this question because the viewers may not know that, you know, each of us have a decision to make about our careers, but it's all about, you know, what makes things a fit for us. And so I'm curious about if you can both talk about that.
1: Sure. So I guess I could get started. So I mentioned that I am starting my faculty career in February at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That can be considered sort of the more traditional academic route. What I sort of skipped over in my you know, brief synopsis or biography is that it's definitely not been a linear route for me. I spent some time in industry. I worked at Wyeth and then when it converted into Pfizer for a while, and I worked in several different labs and different science environments in between grad school and undergraduate and grad school. And these sort of exposed me to you know, in a small way to the different types of science environments that there are. I think what happened then is at an early age, I knew I wanted to go into academic science because I, as I was in these environments, I was realizing, wow, there are huge benefits to each of these environments and there are drawbacks to each of these environments. And the important thing is figuring out what's the right fit for you as an individual. What questions or approaches are most important to you? Is team science more important to you? Is mentoring important to you? All of these kinds of questions. And so I knew I wanted to try at least to pursue academic science. Now, I don't know what will happen in the future. You know, my my goals are to run a successful research program and to mentor many students and keep that excitement for science going and support them in whatever careers they do, you know, academia, industry, policy, you know, all the other things that are out there. But, you know, this ultimately my hope is that I can be in an environment where I can be mentoring students, which is what I love to do, that I can be directing the science project, which is what excites me. And one of the things that was sort of missing for me personally in industry, being able to choose the direction that we're going to go in terms of the research. But also as somebody who has like a very unique background from what we traditionally or what we still see as the majority in science, my hope is that, you know, as we're talking about today, that we can really make science more diverse and importantly include that equity and inclusion as well that science becomes a place where it really is just a meeting of many minds and backgrounds and interests. And this diversity drives the types of questions and the approaches that we take to these questions in the lab environments. And that becomes a normalized thing, you know, so it's not just one viewpoint or one general viewpoint asking a question, but it's coming from, you know, many people. And that through that, the science endeavor will be stronger. And I would love to be a part of that. And I think that's why I'm here and why I've chosen that career.
2: Yeah, I mean, I can hear the passion in, in Crystal's voice here. It's incredible to hear. I'm different. So all my my career, I when I was pursuing the PhD and when I started the postdoc, I was very, I want to say anti-academia is the term I'm going to use, where it was something I wasn't even considering. I will say though, since starting the postdoc, I think because for the first time I finally saw scientists who looked like me who were doing the things that I like to do, I think maybe that started to change my mind a little bit to the idea that, that you know, maybe it's some place, academia does have place for us to be there and not be the only, which is something that's very important to me. I currently am at a crossroads though. So 2022 was my my year to decide and I've been talking to so many people and I've gone to so many places and just sort of hearing about different journeys and trying to decide what the next step is. And I'm not quite ready to announce what my future is right now, but I do know what I'm very passionate about. And and that's one thing that sort of brought it back up is health disparities, especially in, in the cancer setting specifically. And I love, love, love biomarker discovery and development. It's not hot, right? It's not the new treatment. It's not the mechanism behind the treatment, which a lot of cancer biologists love, understandably, but it is something that matters to me because at the end of the day, when you Think about whether or not someone should receive this drug. The reason is because you're thinking about the quality of life of the person, be it actually physically and how they're reacting or be it financially or be it any other sort of like factors that sort of influence that. So with that, I have thought very strongly about the stuff that I love and I love the biomarker world. I love the health disparity world. I love working with patient advocates. I just think they're such incredible humans who really just give such great insight since they're they're people who are experiencing this. And that's sort of where my my future is looking is, is sort of being able to work with all of these people and with working with different researchers and working with oncologists as well. Cause I, I do love oncologists as well. They're just really I've met some incredible ones and and they're always willing to teach. And it's it just seems like a good, good environment to be in. So that's my future is, I guess, up in the air, we'll say. But
0: <laughs> thank you for that. And my next question is, what is DEI to you? Because I think a lot of places think that DEI is actionable items that they can accomplish and move on. But I'm curious about like, what does DEI really mean to each of you? And what is its place in academia and also just in science in general?
2: So for me, when I think of DEI, I think of it very holistically. The reason I want to say that is because I, I have found... That often there's sort of really a focus on on one part or the other of it, right? And I think the other, it's not just like diversity, equity, inclusion, but also belonging is one of the things that I really, really like. And kind of like the most important part to me is that you're not just recruiting people to an institution, to a job, whatever it is, but also making it an an accepting environment that's sort of fit for all. And I know that's maybe easier said than done. I'm not sure that's a true statement. Actually, I think it's pretty easy to do to make it a welcoming place. But when it comes to that, it's not acknowledging, again, that what Crystal said before, that diversity, when you bring diversity, you get diversity of thought. When you have diversity of thought, you have science just blooming, right? Accepting that diversity does not mean just bringing in X amount of people, and then that's it. But really, taking advantage of like how incredible so many different humans are and how our different experiences bring us with different levels of knowledge and just really make, again, just sort of making it more of a holistic view.
1: Yeah, that's great. I just want to echo, you know, what Eileen said, because I also think of it sort of holistically. I also think we all know what, what DI definition, by definition, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I would echo that. Oftentimes I see initiatives that are clearly only really thinking about one or two of those things in addressing in whatever they're trying to address. And I think it's important to think about all these things together. I also think, like Eileen said, the sense of belonging is absolutely crucial because in my mind, um diversity, equity, and inclusion means that everybody is in the scientific environment, everybody feels included, everyone feels like they belong. And everybody feels like their voice has value to the enterprise. Um, And, you know, these are for the reasons I I just stated earlier. You know, we all recently saw Carolyn Bertozzi win the Nobel Prize, which was exciting for many reasons. But also, you know, a a video was posted of a, a speech that she gave on Twitter, which I thought was really impactful. And she talked about essentially saying that this discovery wouldn't have likely come about if her lab wasn't as diverse as it was at the time. And she felt like that was because the idea initially seemed crazy to people, you know, to do these kinds of chemistries in, in living, um, tissue and that sort of thing. And it sometimes it takes people from different environments, people who don't have the same perspectives to believe in the crazy, right? And I think, you know, science, as we all know, is about creativity and discovery. And you have to be able to see things that other people sometimes can't see, I think, in order to make huge advances. There's also a sort of more practical benefit of having multiple minds in the room. The reality is that you don't, you know, if you only have one type of people in the room, then they define what the problems are that that we need to address. But when we look at all of society, are these really the problems that we need to address or are we addressing them in the right way? And I'll say, for example, because Eileen is very passionate about cancer disparities, cancer is definitely one of these um, areas where we see the impact of, you know, having sort of one or two general perspectives. And, you know, we hear things like, oh, well, you know, when people think about, you know, how does food and diet fit into overall well-being in in treatment and cancer treatment and that sort of thing. And then you see these papers and these these discussions about, you know, what people are eating and and maybe they don't have the knowledge. So let's try to give them the knowledge. But a lot of times there are people like us who are in the room who are like, no, they don't have the resources. Um, And so it's important, you know, to have people in the room who can give you that other perspective and make sure that we're addressing the problems correctly and, you know, able to do that research. So I just think, you know, when we think about diversity equity and inclusion our goal should be that everyone that comes to this campus feels like they belong feels like their voice is important in what we do in the science in science and also that our campus that where everyone feels like they belong reflects the society in which we exist And I think both of those things are are really important.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate how you're incorporating holistic views about DEI, because I think that's one thing that's really important is to really understand that it's not just one thing, it's many things. But I really like between what both of you all said, the sense of belonging. I think that is the key. And I really believe that in order for us to really achieve what we say we want to achieve as a culture, meaning a scientific culture, we're really going to have to think about how to have a fit be a sense of belonging, the changing of the guard between fit to sense of belonging, because without sense of belonging, none of us are truly going to be able to do that authentic science that we love because we can't incorporate all of who we are Um, You know, that leads me to my next question about how we really are changing the guard with DEI. And what I mean by that is two things. One is, how do you think the academy or industry in general is doing with integrating real DEI change? And then the other question, you know, I want to kind of tie in together because they're kind of the same thing, which is, what are the deeper questions about DEI that should be addressed? And an institution should be asking in order to really change its climate and culture.
1: Yeah, um, both of those are really important and really difficult questions. I think, you know, most of the approaches that we've seen to DEI have been, you know, to essentially form DEI committees, for example, that might be made up of, of several members. And then these committees are advising the departments or the universities or the industrial teams on, you know, what they would recommend to improve the climate and to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion at these respective institutions. But what I, what I feel like overall in terms of are they really being impactful? In some cases, yes, absolutely. But the sort of real breakdown, I think, is whether or not leadership really takes on suggestions of the DEI committees. And, you know, even, even more than that, are the DEI committees really sort of reaching deep enough into the problems? Are they really sort of all doing their homework, investigating, speaking to the people, you know, in their communities and finding out what they really need, what things really need to be addressed and doing these sorts of things. And I think overall, what I what I feel is that people kind of want to sort of put a Band-Aid on like a gaping wound, if if you will, for DEI. And what I mean is, a lot of these committees will suggest, you know, several things. They have a list of say ten things that they give to their university or to their leaders um, at their institution, and the leadership will opt one or two of these things that are easy to do in the moment, that are very surface level, that you know are things that can be very public. You know, so they might have like a visibility campaign or things like that. And these things are good. I'm not, there's, there's nothing wrong with these, these things being done, but then they sort of lose energy or momentum. And they're like, okay, well, we've done some things and they've had a positive impact or a measurable impact. And so we're kind of, you know, we don't need to put as much energy towards that. And I think that that's really wrong um, because I think what really needs to happen to create, like we were talking about the sense of a belonging is a really, really good look at transforming Practices throughout the university. So, in other words, DEI can't be fixed by a couple community events or a visibility campaign. These are all good things, they help build community, but DEI goes into the classroom. Do the students in your classroom equitably have the supplies they need to succeed in the labs? Are there people in the labs, like I talk a lot on Twitter, for example, about reimbursement culture? Are there people in the labs that can't go to conferences and share their science like other people or their peers? because of, you know, financial equity issues. So all of these things have a huge impact ultimately on maintaining, really, really creating an environment where diversity, equity, and inclusion are something or true DEI or something that we can obtain. Um, And so I think we'll never get there until people are sort of willing to realize that there needs to be like an evaluation and changes that happen system-wide to really sort of support really advancing DEI.
2: Yeah, I probably have lots more to say, but I think we should let we should hear from Eileen because I know she has some good things too. Crystal just hit the nail on the head and I echo every single word (laughs) she said. Every I also just want to add to that too, is in terms of how institutions are doing, it's a really hard question to answer because it's really how do you measure it? Right. And one of the things that I've noticed in different places is how. Well, we we already know how siloed a lot of academia is anyway, and Crystal mentioned how these different committees have formed. and, And I've seen firsthand really how some committees formed and have implemented changes, and some committees formed and have thought about the changes, and then there's some committees formed, and then that's all they did. So we sort of have this infiltration of performative DEI work that has occurred, be it with malintention or be it unintentional, right? I think some people really don't care about it. They quote some people who say that DEI is terrible and we're just going to get terrible scientists because of it or whatever terrible things, unfounded things that are being said. But there are people who, who do mean well, I think. They're just, maybe they don't have the power to carry out whatever it is that they're proposing. You know, maybe... They do mean well, but it's gonna be a little bit uncomfortable to actually do that, right? Cause you're challenging the status quo when you're doing these type of this type of work. Um, so it's it's a little bit hard because when you see someone doing it right, you're like, okay, they're doing it right. <laughs> and you're like, this is great. But it's it's hard when you see other people who really are trying, but they're just not really hitting the nail on the head. And I, I think that goes back to what Crystal was saying too, is who's actually a part of these committees? Are you listening to the people who are on the committees? Because that's one thing I've personally experienced is I have consulted on certain matters and I, I have found that my voice was just ignored. So I'm like, what's what's the point of me being here if you're not even going to take into account my experience and what my opinion is on this? And that's not just something that's happening to me. I know that's happening to others as well.
0: That's a key component. I mean, I really think that you both are hitting the nail on the head, Um, Eileen, and I really think that the key thing is what you said, you know, are you really listening? A lot of times individuals want to, you know, say that they are listening in the context that they're doing great work. And I hear also what you said, Crystal, about doing one or two surface level things, but then it doesn't get into the concept of like, how can we critically create change and long lasting change? And it also begins with that sense of belonging again, especially what you said in the context of you are at the table trying to make change, but then they're not listening to you. And that is something that I hope that the listeners that are aware of on the STEM STEMT podcast is that DEI starts when you listen to someone's voice. When they are heard and you can incorporate that in active change, that is the beginning of the conversation. And then maintaining that change by looking at the temperature constantly and reevaluating it is that retention that we always kind of are talking about that we really are not hitting our nail on the head with because we're focused on these surface level, one or two things thinking this is really creating sense of belonging you know, I really enjoy what you all are saying. And I do have another question for you around the context of supporting skills. Do you think that there are more important things that leaders could focus on to create authentic DEI change at an institution? Or do you think it's more of just, you know, kind of a group problem and not just kind of really the institutional leadership?
1: This is sort of like a two-part question, but one thing is, I think whatever the whoever the leaders are that are sort of advancing um, DEI need to be empowered. This, I think, is incredibly important and something that doesn't exist at many universities. A lot of the diversity offices are really sort of suggesting really, I think, transformative and reasonable things, but they don't necessarily have the power to bring these things about, right? So they're going and they're advocating and that sort of thing. But if we're serious about advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think it's important to empower these leaders, um, to be able to, you know, without sort of a huge discussion within reason enact some of the changes that they would like to see, um, happen at the university. And I think that that requires in terms of an individual leadership level that requires, you know, essentially being brave. And it also requires somebody who, for example, is, um, you know, um, uh, wants to bring everybody together has no intention to sort of um malign anybody or cause disagreement but is willing to stand up for what needs to happen and sometimes that that it's going to lead to disagreement but i think you know for institutions to really sort of get behind the di leaders is important you know, for example, a lot of people recently have been hiring or a lot of departments around the the country and the world have been focusing on hiring faculty who are passionate about diversity, equity and inclusion, and many of them who come from sort of diverse backgrounds themselves. And I think this is a wonderful thing but then the question we always ask like Eileen said in terms of retention is what then is the university willing to do to support them and to make sure that they're successful and to make sure that their voices are heard so if you're bringing somebody to the university to advance equity and do they have you know, a regular and planned way to sort of give feedback and to be heard on, you know, what needs to change. But importantly, going, going back to the process of selecting these people, what, what I find is that all the, a lot of universities, the departments are doing these things individually. So this is how we're going to design our faculty hiring paperwork so that we can hire somebody, that kind of thing. Have you talked to the diversity officers at your university? Are they included in the hiring decisions? You know, if you're really trying to identify people that are going to come and commit to change and be passionate about it and leading that change, don't you think you should probably? It seems like it would make sense to me to be having those people in on those discussions. But what happens at most places is, you know, departments are resistant to that idea. They're like, no, well, we're we're scientists, and, and this is a scientists and faculty discussion, and they're not wrong about you know, many aspects of that. But if you're really focused on DEI, then you do need to have those people in on these conversations for applications and helping you to make these decisions so that you can have the most impactful change. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to empowering that leadership and having that huge commitment level to be willing to sort of really allow transformative things to happen. You know, my recent like discussion on Twitter was about universities not seeing DEI work as scholarship. And I think this is a critical thing. I think if you bring someone in like, to be honest, yourself, Dr. Hinton, who devotes an amazing amount of time to growing an exceptional science program, but also publishes regularly, leads workshops, you know, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, to me, that's all scholarship. That's all something extremely valuable that people like you bring to the university. And I think that's something that needs to be recognized in the process of, you know, tenure and and getting higher leadership positions and appointments. And that's a hard sort of shift, you know, for universities to think about, well, I don't know, that's more like service, you know, that kind of, you know, there's all kinds of discussions that happen. But I guess the point is, you know, I I learned about one place that had actually done this and implemented this into their tenure model so that this was an alternative pathway. It's not saying everybody's a DEI expert, but but for those who add that additional expertise, they created another path to tenure um, that would take this into account. And my point here is this is the kind of, you know, new thinking, transformative Decision making that I think needs to happen for various, you know, on various levels in order to really support and advance diversity,
2: equity, and inclusion. Plus one to all of that. (laughs) That was incredible. What other thing I just I do want to add, and this is actually something Crystal mentioned a little while ago too, is having those checks throughout, right? Like, where the three of us are scientists on this call, and when we design something, we're thinking about a paper, we design it right from beginning to end, but with Within that, we we have all these stops, right, where you stop and you really critically look at your science and you're looking at yourself and you're reassessing, right? And I think that's really vital for institutions to, to do. I don't, I don't know that every institution does that, and I don't know to what extent they do it, but sitting down and reassessing and saying, okay, what were our goals? Were they realistic? Did we set realistic goals? Okay, what can we change? And then from there, really letting it organically evolve, I think is really, really important.
0: You know, one thing that I really like what you both said is that there needs to be investigation of new tracks. You know, I'll share with you, you know, that I'm writing an article on the future of DI. And that's one of the things that I talk about is the context of how to expand the cabinet, if you will, of the leadership, how there should be a focus on truly what it means to be a mentor, meaning that there should be potentially a deanship of mentorship or faculty development, if you wanna kind of combine both together, or a dean of career development and professional development, and then a dean of diversity, equity inclusion. All three should work together, but there should be specific things that are carved out for those individuals that want to pursue those routes. And they're just as important at an institution than any other and they also require you know someone at the managerial or instructor level and also an assistant dean to run and also a steady budget that comes from the institution that it's not something that is like under you know 500,000 meaning like a million to 2 million dollars if you're a big institution at bare minimum and really an ideal budget would be around 3 to 5 million to be able to operate each year effectively on how to be able to create a culture change um, this is something that really you know, putting out there because I think that a lot of times we want faculty to be able to do DEI. We want faculty to be able to do mentorship, but it becomes a large burden sometimes when these faculty are also having to do their research and keep everything at the same level or if not better. And so creating an infrastructure around this would actually be able to take a huge burden off of faculty. And then there wouldn't have to be these unique faculty cases where you're doing this and you're doing that, but you can really focus on what you love and creating that culture in your laboratory. I myself, you know, feel that without me being able to do those things, there's not that sense of belonging at my institution. And that in itself can have its own burning around how I do things or how I want to focus on you know, my research, because if I'm not passionate about being at an institution, how can I be passionate about the research that I'm doing? Because it goes hand in hand. And this is rhetorical, of course, not in the context that, you know, an institution is bad because no institution is perfect and all institutions will have their issues. But it's to say that we all should be aware of really, you know, what that institution has for an individual now and what they will have in the future. Remember, future resources is something to consider when making a decision, just all of you all that are listening on the podcast. You know, one other thing that I think that's really important is to actually take a temperature pulse of what's going on. Um, So it could be, you know, you can call it a temperature, you can call it, you know, you want to do a pulse check to see like, you know, how the health of the institution is doing towards DEI. And, you know, this brings me to my next question about how do we monitor an institution's performance toward DEI? Uh, I just, it's a lot, but I, I feel like I want to speak, but I'm not going to speak. I want you all to speak. Hear your voices. that go ahead.
1: Yeah. You know, what the listeners can't see is that I was just, you know, kind of shaking my head a little bit. What we commonly see for institutions that want to do this is some type of survey, right? And I have a lot of feelings around this, especially that these surveys have to really think about how to be protective because many of us you know even in this room have had the experience at one place or another of being the only a survey cannot cannot be anonymous if you are the only in the department if they're saying you know the african-american contingent of the surgery survey felt this way and you're literally the only african-american in the department well it's not anonymous right but beyond that what i really want to say is I think these surveys can be a really powerful way to sort of get to what you're asking. The problem that I see or encounter is how these surveys are viewed, like what we do with the data once we get it. And so, for example, sometimes you'll see these DI surveys and they'll say 94% of people are happy with the state of DEI at the university, and that's good, Right. But then you have to dig into the numbers and you find out, OK, well, the 7 percent are almost 100 percent of the black and brown people at the university. Well, that's a problem. If the the minority, you know, or the, the minority population in that within that institution feels differently about how the department is advancing diversity, equity and inclusion, then we need to really ask some questions. And I so I guess what I'm saying here is that's sometimes what doesn't happen. A lot of times, you know, I've seen it several times myself at different places. They'll look at it and say, oh, well, we got almost a four out of five for, you know, do you feel like your support department is supportive of you or inclusive of you as an individual, despite your differences or something like that? And they're like, four out of five is pretty good. Right. But they're not really asking themselves, I think, the right questions, which is what populations don't feel this way and why don't they feel this way and what can we do to ensure that we have a four out of five, if that's your benchmark in all populations within the university. And that goes a lot the disabled students feel the same way. Do the students feel the same way as faculty? Does the LGBTQ community feel the same way in the survey? Does the black and brown community, does the Asian community feel the same way? It's really important to not just sort of do surface level analysis of these surveys, which I see a lot of places, where they're like, that's good enough, or maybe we can improve it some. If we can go from 4, 4.0 to 4.1, like that's progress. Is it progress? Are we ha- asking about progress in the right places? So, I guess my point is surveys can be really powerful, I think, ways to sort of take pulse, but we really have to be very critical in how we analyze these surveys and make sure we're asking the right questions that really get to are we really improving? diversity, equity, and inclusion on our campus. And to be honest with you, because diversity, equity, and inclusion is, I believe, focused generally on populations that tend to be underrepresented because obviously if we're talking about, you know, having diversity, majority population is not in any way, shape or form less important. But if we're talking about increasing diversity, it's talking about including more of those populations that are underrepresented. And so if we're having these surveys, if we're having these pulse we need to be asking ourselves, what are the gaps between what the majority of populations are saying about the university and what sort of the underrepresented populations are saying about the university? Yeah. And I think the last thing I'll say is conversations need to happen. So surveys are powerful, but you know what I don't see a lot is like town halls and real conversations where people make sure lots of different people have the opportunity to speak, that lots of different people are heard. And the thing is, we don't see this a lot because these conversations are difficult, but they allow you to understand the nuances that can't be understood just from survey demographics or, you know, did you pick the right questions, that kind of thing for your survey. Just having those check-ins with your department, how are we meeting your needs? How are we not meeting your needs around these issues, I think is something that needs to happen. I think one of the most powerful models I've seen is when a department has a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, and that committee meets regularly with the chair, and that chair reports to the department on things that they've implemented in response to um, the committee's, you know, recommendations. And I think that sort of transparency, that sort of Regular communication is really important to changing these environments.
2: I love hearing you talk I about these things know. and I'm spot on with everything, especially the, the the survey stuff was really sticking out to me because it's what, what are you doing with the survey? You're going to keep making me take my time to fill this, these surveys out. And what are you doing with it? <laughs> you know, are you implementing any changes? What are you doing? To shift the culture. We all know there are some people in certain departments who are going to be a little bit more toxic than others. You know, what do we do when that person does something egregious? How are you? addressing microaggressions how are you addressing like there's so many almost like i want to say concrete things that that can really be done right what are we doing for are we doing any bystander intervention training are we teaching people about the differences in power and how that affects your trainees and your mentees you know there's so many things that can be done and i think by by having these trainings which i know people don't love these things but i do i think by putting these type of this type of programming in you're you're sending a message about what you believe in as an institution and that starts to change the culture, and it's it's not going to change overnight. Might not even change in my lifetime, right? But it's those little incremental changes are what are really gonna gonna make a change. And I love that you talked about the the town halls too, because that's something I know about a specific DEI committee and a specific institution, and I won't say where that is, but that explicitly been trying to have town halls and explicitly tried like you know has designed it and thought about okay, which trainees do you put with which trainees, and where do you put. The admin, and where do you put the faculty? You know, and they've thought about this, and they've thought, well, who is there? You know, and then at the end of the day, it's leadership that's not letting them do it, right? And why is leadership not letting them do it is Because they're afraid of the of what's going to come out, right? That's to me, that's the only the only possible reason why you're stopping this from happening. But by allowing these type of uncomfortable conversations to happen in a safe space where people can feel protected, you'll see how people start to open up more and more, and then you can really these different these different issues that are going on.
1: Yeah. And I just, I wanted to add, because that was a great comment, like on top of something you just quickly touched on is they're afraid of, you know, what's going to come out of these conversations. I think fear needs to stop in general. Fear, I think, drives a lot of decisions around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's why, you know, I mentioned earlier that it requires brave leadership. I want to say specifically, the fear around legality is a huge issue in Ooh. diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. I don't, I know, every, like, like, Everybody on this call has heard at one point, I don't know if we could call it that because legally that might not be okay. I don't know if we could host this event because legally it might not be okay. And I understand that. Like We have to, of course, be careful about um, legal concerns, but not when uh, legal concerns stand in the way of us doing what we've thought about, what we've considered carefully, and what we think is right. I think it requires universities that are willing to say, we want to do X, Y, and Z to improve diversity, equity, inclusion. And if there are legal battles that result from that, then we are extremely wealthy and powerful universities, and we're willing to take on that fight. And I'm not talking about, you know, just everything. We're just going to cause problems. We're not going to care. Really consider it a policy. And you really think that this is going to benefit the university as a whole, that it's going to benefit the community then there can't be any fear. There shouldn't be any fear in implementing these types of things. And I'll speak, you know, on one thing that's important to me, obviously, as a Black woman, I care about the fact that we are the least represented in science by the numbers next to Native Americans. And so when I hear we're we're, we're working on advancing diversity, equity and inclusion, I always think, well, great, there's obviously going to be some effort towards the most marginalized communities, which is where I think We should focus. And so when we see, you know, an initiative happening and there's zero black women that are included in whatever, you know, group or initiative that is reached out to, it just sort of brings the question of, well, can we can we not be more directed in trying to reach out to certain populations, this initiative. We're trying to increase the number of Black female faculty on campus. We're trying to increase the number of Indigenous faculty on campus, or et cetera. Can we not be more directed? And and in doing that, really sort of change the outcomes. And the reality is that in most places, we can't because of the legality. Nobody will say, hey, it's really sad that less than 1% of our faculty are Black females. We're going to address that directly. We can't because we don't want to say anything legally. And this is not, you know, I always feel like it's important to say this. This is not to like pin one group against the other. I think we need true DEI is about advancing and making sure that our populations reflect what we see in the world. And that includes making the representation of women better, making the representation of the disabled community better. All of these things need to be addressed. But I'm saying if there's a specific problem or a goal that you have, you should be able to you know, reach towards that goal and not be worried about the legality. Because at the end of the day, very little changes if you can't be really directed in your measures. Um, And so I just hope personally that we see universities that are willing to say and take on these, tackle these challenges and to say, no, we think we have to do these things in order to be transformative. And we're willing to do whatever it takes in order to be transformative.
2: And if I can add to the other thing that I, that I see is, and it's easier for me to say as a postdoc, right? Cause like, what power do I have? <laughs> but to me, I'm kind of like, yeah. hey, why don't you do it? Cause I, I, the way I see it, like when one institution does it, the other ones are real quick to follow up. Right. But it's always getting that first one to do it. But, you know, to me, it's just like, just be the trailblazer in this. And this is, not related, but related, right. Thinking about the NIH, the NIH is really focused on disparities now as someone who's been, I I focus on cancer health disparities, right. And someone who's been working in this field for X amount, I won't age myself again, but you know, X amount of years, it's something that I have felt like I've been standing on a soapbox for such a long time. And thankfully I have been able to find people, generally people who are black and brown, like me who care about the same thing. And we have these, these conversations, but now, you know, especially since 2020, uh, NIH has been like, nope, now we, we have to care about diversity in the workforce and we have to care about diversity, health equity. This is like big focus. And now suddenly all these programs care about health equity and all these programs care about cancer health disparities. And now this classes are happening. Right. And that's because a, an institution that's like in a really high place of power. Right. Because they give us our. <laughs> Or money. Now, you know, they they know that power that they have because they give the money to the scientists. And now scientists are caring about this, about something that I, you know, as a master's student, as a PhD student, I was told repeatedly how much it doesn't matter, that no one really cares about this stuff. This isn't as important as the mechanism of, of whatever kids are selling, you know? So again, it's just... Having the first one do it, I think, and then you see how quickly the other ones kind of fall in line. And I know it's scary, but I think if it aligns with your values and it aligns with your morals, why not? Absolutely. They have to be bold. It always takes that first one, just like with postdoc salaries we've seen
1: recently happening. You know, one place, Mm. state you'd increased it, and then other places followed, and IGMS followed recently. And now people are going, oh, well, but we can't afford this. What do we do? absolutely right we need to come up with solutions but we wouldn't have gotten to the point of really thinking about solutions in some unless somebody was willing to be bold enough to make the action that needed to happen
0: this is really good i mean i agree with you it's all about not just the institution but some institution that can, can be a leader compared to the other institutions or already is a leader in research And then they're like, oh, I want to be like them or I want to be like this. Like my institution says they're the Harvard of the South, along with many other institutions that do that. Right. So it's kind of that's a way, you know, like if you get Yale, Harvard, Princeton, for example, you know, Columbia, just, you know, an Ivy League, just right at the top, caring about DEI in a way that others will not then that will change the guard because people are looking at those institutions to be like those institutions because they care about rankings. And the other way is tied to funding. And I concur with you all that the change in the guard has happened and it's gonna continue to happen, especially now that the NIH is requiring in certain institutions, you know, this DEI statement, that is really changing things and like, well, can you really quantify what you've done? And so I think when it's starting to be tied to funding, people will actively start to make changes. You know, there are other grants that, you know, are named anonymous, but that are starting to incorporate those values as well from private foundations. And they're the larger foundations that really give a larger chunk of money um, and they're heavily endowed. And so now that that's at the table, people are starting to, you know, say, well, okay, we need to do this, you know, and you still can have your nature solar, science paper because DEI takes nothing away from that. I like to use that Christopher Barnes example, Dr. Christopher for Barnes. Well, he did it. So he has great funding. So we all can do the same thing. So you can be an amazing scientist and just so happen to be a minority, you know, so what's the difference? You know, you can have equity and you can have diversity, you can have inclusion and still excellent science. I want to beg the question whether or not is it actually truly that if there was equity, do people fear the fact that, you know, there could be just individuals that are just playing better? And does that mean that now they're competitors for funding for something that, you know, where science doesn't have an infinite amount of funding? You know, do the individuals that actually have all the resources really control everything? And it's sometimes just people that are in position and don't want to let go of the reins or share the reins. And you have to sometimes be more clever with the money that you have. And sometimes you have to negotiate in different ways. And I don't think people want to be able to do that. You know, I do that a lot as an assistant professor, figuring out what someone can do so that I can, you know, you can pay for this person and I can do this, you know, but a lot of people don't want to have to do that. They want to be the haves versus the have-nots. And I think when you start to really incorporate not only fear, but understanding what that fear is from, stemming from, well, if we actually create space, it really means that there's less resources and it means that we're all equal in the playing field. And then now we have to really, you know, just be as good or better in order to really get the the slice of the pie that we once had. And I think that is really, you know, not being said enough in the conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, but you know, that is, for another day, for another episode, maybe, but I do want to not, you know, take up much of your time. I want to respect your time. So I want to keep going on. The other one that I really, you know, has been kind of on the table for me is really kind of understanding what you think the future of DI will look like in the academy, you know, will it continue to get better or is it a lost cause because, you know, of political climate, because of, you know, leadership, you know, for a variety of different things. And you can say how you feel in any regard, uh, just letting you know.
1: Yeah. I have to say, like, tend to be very optimistic about this. I think about what I saw 20 years ago when I was entering science and what I see now, and there's improvement. Is it as improved as I would like? Absolutely not. But it has changed significantly. And I think the more things we're willing to try... The more we're likely to see significant change. I'm hopeful, you know, in seeing all of my peers become more and more diverse. Peers being incoming faculty and and whatnot being more and more diverse. That more of us being in the room means we're going to be having these conversations with the right people. We're going to be able to step in and say, "Oh, I think we should also consider this." And I am hopeful that that will lead to some change ultimately. I think it won't be a linear path. I have unfortunate feeling that things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, I think we're starting to already see some of that sort of pushback. And so, you know, I think it's definitely individual battles and a long war, uh, if you will. But I do believe in the end that we are moving towards a better, you know, a system where we understand and appreciate diversity, equity, and inclusion more. And
2: I'm really hopeful about that. Uh, Crystal just took the words right out of my mouth. I was gonna say exactly. What she was saying with, it's not going to be linear. I do, I, I agree. It's going in the right direction though, and I think it's, it's growing kind of exponentially, exponentially while like also plateauing up. To, so I think we're just gonna, we're gonna get there. We're, we're on our way, but it's, it's gonna be
0: a bumpy ride. Thank you for that. I do have, you know, kind of more of transition question. I'm curious about: Do you consider mentoring an important part of DEI? And I also wanted to tie, how do you quantify DEI for that so that we can kind of get to that last question after these?
2: I, yes, just yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's something that's, you know, mentoring up, mentoring down. I think it's something that's at every level. So important when I think about, let's say, let's focus specifically, if you're going to be recruiting Black and brown women, I'm Afro-Latina. So, you know, recruiting someone like me, there's, I, I need a certain type of mentorship, right? And I know that now. Now that I've I've mentored myself, now that I've grown up a little bit, I guess. And I think it's so important just to tailor to everyone. And at the same time, like it's not just at the graduate student and postdoc level. I think faculty need continued mentorship as well. And I think it just, it, it needs to be just sort of ingrained into like in, woven into the thread and of the fabric, I'll say. far as quantifying DEI, I think that's a great question. And that's something that's so multi-level and there's so many components to it, but there are ways to do it. And I think it's, it's really again, going holistic with it and looking at all different components. It's not just how many people did you hire? It's how many people are staying. It's how are people looking at those survey answers and okay, how many people are happy here? All right. All right. Is this a toxic place? Is there one particular department that's toxic? What are you doing to, re- to rectify that? So it, I think it's very it's a very complex thing, but it is, it is possible to quantify it as well.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Mentorship is absolutely critical in my mind to DEI. All of these things that universities might do are important, you know, having community events that honor different aspects of people's identities, bringing in speakers from different backgrounds, all of these things are important. But at the end of the day, if the individual mentors, if the people who are interacting with one another are not having good or productive relationships or supportive relationships, then it all falls apart. You know, and we see this, I think, again and again, unfortunately, in some of the university environments where, you know, if you looked on their website, for example, you might think that this is a place that's really interested in advancing diversity, equity and inclusion. But then you talk to the people on the ground, they're telling you that they're unhappy, that, you know, they hired 50 faculty of color in the last few years and literally every single one of them is now gone. Like you hear these stories and that is about a breakdown, I think, in primarily in mentorship. And so, you know, I think, how do we quantify DEI? How do we quantify these types of things? In terms of mentorship, I think every university should be asking themselves, if does the class that we bring in, you know, the graduate class that we bring in, have the same level of diversity as the graduate class that we graduate? And if not, where are the disparities? These are things that I feel like the universities should be tracking. You know, I won't say which one, but one of the universities that I went to did track this and they found that there is a huge disparity that unfortunately Black students are less likely to graduate. And then let's evaluate that information. Did we meet with the students and find out what was going on? Um, what were the issues? Did we see evidence of that type? Those issues in the surveys. Unfortunately, I think what happens a lot of times is people just say, "Well, they must not have fit into the program," or you know, they couldn't cut it. But what people like me who mentor these students hear is that's not the case a lot of the time. There are students who have papers, lots of papers, who pass their quals, who essentially did well in their classes, who leave, and we should be really asking ourselves why does that happen? And I think you know, just keeping track of those numbers is an initial way to sort of start asking those questions of, like Eileen said, are people happy? Are people being successful in the environments that we bring them into? And if not, then we need to start to evaluate why. I think also there are some things to evaluate DI that we already do. A lot of universities track how much, what percentage of faculty are taking a part in DI training and in mentor, mentorship training. I think many of us would agree that We'd like to see universities actually require these types of training in the same way that we require sexual harassment training and that sort of thing. Because, again, I think mentorship is critical. You can create an environment that has a lot of support for students from underrepresented backgrounds that you bring in. But if their individual faculty mentors have a history of doing, you know, to be honest, racist things and saying, making racist statements, then. There's not going to be much impact, you know, that the community building can have when at the individual level, the student is being let down. So yeah, I think mentorship is critical. And I think we can at least begin to start thinking about and tracking DEI. And I think part of also the last thing I'll say is in those surveys we take, what I was saying earlier is if we're being really critical in analyzing this data. And we're asking ourselves, you know, about that seven percent that weren't happy with the at uh, the university. Well, when we go back two years from now and we've implemented, you know, X number of initiatives, are that seven percent happier? Did we see improvement there? Those are the kinds of things that we should be asking. Not just did the numbers go up, but are specific populations feeling better? You know, that expressed discomfort or dissatisfaction. So yeah.
0: Okay, so as we you know start to close, I wanted to kind of talk about. Should the proof of DEI be required for grant mechanisms? We've kind of touched on that. So I just wanted to kind of change it just a tad. And I was wondering, should all grant mechanisms include area that discusses mentorship? Should all grant areas include an area that touches diversity, equity, inclusion related to outcomes and who they've trained and you know, is that enough? You know, I know we're starting to put in these, you know, you know, one pagers about mentorship or one pages about DEI. But truly, you know, is that enough? You know, should it expand to like how do you embrace the environment, for example? How do you create a safe environment? I mean, I, I know some people will be like, oh, this is an administrative nightmare. But when you really think about it, three pages to get, you know, two two million dollars is not that much more, you know, it's really about the quality of things. And people have been adjusted to the expanding R01 because before it wasn't as many pages. So you know we get adjusted to these things over time. This is something that you know lingo for the NIH R01s are a 12-page document just for individuals that are listening internationally. So you would have your equivalent fundings at your um your home country, you know. Um, just, just to throw that out there so everyone's kind of on the same page. But the reason that I just wanted to, you know, kind of bring that into to the fold is because, you know, I think that we've just started to really understand what's required for diversity, equity, inclusion and mentoring in a grant. And I'm wondering, you know, how can we really change the guard if we're not really pushing to really understand how grant dollars can be used?
2: I want to say yes. And I'm actually not going to really talk about that particular part because I already know Crystal's going to have so much to say about it in a good way. But one thing I want to say is not just including including this in the grants, but making sure that the people reading these grants are reading between the lines and really are able to evaluate what the people are saying. And I'm talking about these particular parts that you're mentioning, which I love. <laughs> I think they should be a part of it. But I think as someone who's read a lot of DEI statements, I, I see how some people will perceive. Uh, certain letters and the way letters are written, and I've gotten pretty good at reading between the lines and seeing what's performative and what's, you know, what's not, <laughs> not actually DEI work. Uh, but not everyone has has that type of training. But thinking about how are they how are those going to be evaluated if they are a part of these grant mechanisms? But I'll let Crystal talk more. Yeah,
1: no, that's that's right. I don't know. I have lots to say, like you said, but at the same time, I have to be honest. <laughs> this is something that I've gone back and forth on thinking in in my thinking. So I don't, I definitely don't have answers here. Um, And so, you know, nobody hold me to these, but I have thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the thoughts is generally speaking, requiring these types of statements forces people to think about these things and that in and of itself can be impactful. It also forces universities to care about these things if they want to get the funding and that can be impactful. The concern I have with requiring these sorts of things is exactly what Eileen touched on, which is she and I both have read a lot of DEI statements. And to be honest with you, you can read between the lines, but a lot of them on the surface sound the same. And we know not everybody cares about (laughs) DEI. Not everybody is doing DEI. So what's happened obviously is... People are finding out what makes a decent statement and they're writing it regardless of whether or not they really care about these things. And that is concerning to me because what I don't want, what I, what I, what I don't want to happen is everybody's allowed to just sort of be performative in these actions. And, you know, people who really don't deserve grants that are focused on people who are champions of diversity, equity, and inclusion, getting these grants because their CV, their science CV looks great. The diversity statement, just like everybody else's and people, you know, how to read between the lines and really sort of suss out people who are really doing the work and people who are just sort of like serving on the committees or not even that. So I just, I guess I, at the end of the day, I sort of go back and forth. Is it really helping or harming? Is it helping towards our goals of really advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion, or is it potentially harming in some ways? I think at this moment in time, I think it's a good thing in general to require these statements. Um, because of the things Eileen said, it because it forces people to think about these things. But I do think we need to spend a lot more time thinking about how to evaluate these statements um, and how to make sure that there's accountability for these statements. I think, you know, I reach, recently spoke about this, um, some on Twitter and, and some in person. It's okay if this is not everybody's priority. I mean, to be honest with you, it's okay. Not everybody um, has to be a DEI champion. Um, But everybody should be thinking about these things. If you're mentoring students, you absolutely should be asking yourselves about how to mentor students from underrepresented backgrounds, how to create environments where they can thrive. Like These are things that everybody should be thinking about. I'd love to get to the point where diversity statements, people don't feel like always have to say that I've been on a million diversity committees, even if that's not something that was my particular interest. Um, to be actively involved in, but the diversity statement is where people really sort of say what they're learning, what they're trying to learn, um, what they see and envision in universities around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's basically a place for people to really sort of be honest um, and allow, you know, then people to respond and to have um, real discussions around these things. But I just—that's very idealist. I don't know if we can get there, so I think we just have to be more careful and really thinking about how we evaluate these statements.
2: If I can spill a little—a little tea, I—it I, stuck stuck out to me when Crystal talked about how it's almost like cookie cutter with it. I years ago it was a an online thing from an institution somewhere. It was an American institution, I'll say that much. But I attended one of these CEI statement workshops and. I left and I was like, that was not meant for me. That was not meant for this Afro-Latina who does so much work in the DEI space. It was meant for non-Black and Brown people, really. I'll say that much. And actually, what I really should say is for people who don't actually do DEI work. It's like, how do you write a DEI statement when you ain't done none of it? <laughs> so those, those exist, right? It, it does It it does exist out there. So I just wanted to, to add that part. Yeah. I, I just remembered. <laughs>
1: Right. And I'll spill just a little bit more to that but, uh, on top of that, because we've read many DI statements in different capacities. I remember a circumstance where I happened to read a DI statement from somebody I knew personally, who I think is an amazing scientist, but not somebody who's been passionately or actively involved in DI issues. And I was shocked <laughs> when I read their statement, because if you read their statement, it sounded like, They were on all of these committees and they were actively doing all of these things. And I'm not saying that they were necessarily being dishonest because a couple of those committees, to my knowledge, they were on, but they were that person who barely spoke up, who didn't come to a lot of the meetings. And that's fine. They don't have to, again, care about that. But it just concerned me that, you know, and I understand the pressures, you know, they want to make sure that they are competitive and and those sorts of things. But I think maybe we need to change the language around the DEI statements, too, to make sure that we're letting people know that this is a space to be somewhat honest about, you know, DEI. Maybe I haven't done a lot around this space in the past, but as faculty, I do think this is important. I plan to attend this training. I plan, you know, to do these things to ensure that I'm being a good mentor, you know, these kinds of things. So I just, I hope to see, you know, that kind of thinking about how to make these statements more honest, how to make them more impactful in that way, and how to make sure that we're evaluating them fairly.
0: You know, Berkeley has started to develop a system around quantifying these DEI statements, but I do feel we need to have a little bit more research around this topic. And I also want to tell you all, I really appreciate everything that you're doing. And you can say whatever else is on your mind. This is a safe space to really, you know, to think about this. I think this might be, you know, another paper coming out, you know, relatively soon. I do want to talk to you all about that offline. You know, I have a couple other ideas that may (laughs) benefit the community. But one thing I do want to ask you all is, what's the tea that you're drinking? You know, as we always close, we always say what type of tea we're drinking, you know, whether it's coffee, whether it's Jack Daniels, honey, because you'd had a hard day at work or water, you know, to refresh and refill, or you may not be drinking on nothing because you're already high on life and you don't have to worry about doing anything because your thirst is quenched. So I'm just wondering, you know, what are you drinking today?
1: Um, I would say definitely not that I'm actively drinking this, but I should be chamomile tea is what I need to be gravitating towards right now. And that's because this is an exciting time in my life as I like think about transitioning to faculty. But it is also a very busy time. It's difficult to go to sleep in good ways and bad ways because you go to sleep and you're so excited. But you're also thinking about did that order go through Did I send that email that um, I reach out to that student. And so, yeah, I I need to be sipping on the the chamomile (laughs) to keep the sleep, sleep regular because that is important.
2: I am a earlier today. I was and every day it's always coffee with a little bit of water (laughs) throughout. So coffee, coffee, coffee. But uh, I'm thinking I'll be sipping on some some wine very soon.
0: (laughs) I totally can understand. There's a lot of hard days being a faculty member. You know, I'm in year two and, you know, transition to year three. You know, there's a lot of things that happen, whether, you know, it's like budgeting, whether it's hiring people, pushing people's performance, you know, to that next level, you know, having to be honest and to be authentic with these relationships can be tough sometimes because you want your trainees to succeed. So, I mean, I, those things keep me up at night sometimes, you know, it's not the personal relationship, it's not the physical health, it's really a lot of times work. And, you know, I think that, you know, having tea around has really helped me a lot. So I've been drinking ginger tea and then also drinking this other tea that's like a red berry tea. Um, it's specifically from Germany, but I really love it because it calms me down, it refills me and it keeps me, you know, like just like, okay, this is going to be a good day. This is going to be a peaceful diet. But yes, during the daytime, since I'm it's, you know, it's day over there, I would usually be drinking, you know, <laughs> some, you know, coffee, my second cup or maybe third cup of coffee. Um, Right now, since I'm in Barcelona, I'm definitely not drinking that. I'm drinking, you know, a little tea right before bedtime. But, you know, one thing I just wanted to say is I really appreciate your time. And I really want to say thank you for being authentic, because a lot of times, you know, you'll get on a platform and you'll kind of, you know, really not really open up to really what is the real possibilities of what needs to change really what needs to happen because we're fearful and sometimes afraid. And I think that is the essence of this whole call is that if you're going to do this work, do it in conjunction with minorities. Don't exclude them and say that this is not a place for them to do this work, because this is what creates that sense of belonging, that authentic environment. I remember my favorite thing that has happened to me um, at, you know, one of these places that You know, I was deciding on if we'll say so, kind of keep it. You know, um, you know, not at any particular institution because I don't want to target anyone. We'll say an American institution. I'll give you a little tea. (laughs) One of the statements that was said to me was that you focus on DEI too much, and you should let the white men focus on it. But if we do do that, that means that you have to take the cultural competency training. That means that you have to take the mentor training. It means that you have to do this. Each year, consistently, it means that you have to pick up the flag and figure out what's equitable to decide. And is it true that you will be able to do that? And so I want to challenge the group of listeners that it's not just white people that say this. It's not just Black people, because not everybody that's a Black person does DEI. So I also want you all to realize that as well. Just because of someone's skin color does not mean that they are authentically thinking about DEI because their experiences are different. So remember that individuals are not a monolith and that they don't think and have the same ideas. So we all have to figure out who's authentic in the space, who really wants to be able to help one another, and who also is willing to thrive and be in that space and not be fearful of a positive change. Um, So i you know, turn it around to you all for last minute thoughts and, you know, anything else that you want to share because the STEM STEM Tea Podcast is always open for some more tea.
1: Yeah, that's great. Actually, that's exactly what I wanted to say, kind of pulled (laughs) off of that. So perfect, AJ, Uh, Dr. Hinton. So the last thing I really want to get across is we are not a monolith. Because of that, we come into these universities with different goals, different ideas, and a lot of times our goals and our ideas are different than our majority peers. Not all the time, but sometimes. I really wish that universities, if they want to retain us, if they want to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion, will give us that flexibility. I think this is critical. Like. I mean, flexibility and funding. If we tell you we want to reduce otherness and part of that is we want to pay for all conferences. We want to pay for food. We want to be able to give our student a little bit of extra money when they can't pay the rent because they come from a low SES background. Whatever those things are, this is not just for the institutions, but for the funding agencies, you know, especially all these new diversity grants and diversity related grants and funding that are coming out. Give us unrestricted funds, allow us to envision science the way we want to envision science. And so like this is, like you said, because we're not a monolith, allow us to bring to science what we can bring to science. And I feel like if you really empower us that way and sort of back us up, that the world is our oyster. Like we can really make some change, can really do some awesome things in science and beyond. So that's like my last me- message. Give us the flexibility. Stop, please stop having so many restrictions on these funds. Acknowledge that we are sometimes different and we want to do things differently, and allow us to do things differently.
2: Yes, <laughs> I love 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 that. Uh, the only other thing I I, I want to add is if. If this is something you are passionate about, and I, I think everyone has said at this point, you know, it's it's not for everyone, but if this is something that you're passionate passionate about, we all know how defeating it can be and we all know how exhausting it can be, but just stick with it and and lean, lean on others. You know, there are some real, some real allies out there too who want to take on a little bit of the burden, and I think it's okay to let them. And I think also just acknowledge your needs as well. And, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup either. So just a beautiful, kind reminder of that as well.